Shut up and sit down. I'm Dr. Corbin Weaver, an OB-GYN resident. I'm Dr. Katie Wyatt, and I'm one too. And I'm Dave Etler, their podfather. And, and we, we are, are the Vagabonds. Three friends venturing through the world of feminism and healthcare for women, babies, and people of all kinds. We don't give medical advice, and we don't speak for anyone other than ourselves. We're just recording conversations we'd be having in bars anyway. Today, we're going to be talking about what might happen on the labor and delivery floor when you come to have a baby. Oh. This is such a good idea, Corbin. Yeah, I just thought like we do a lot of things on the labor and delivery floor that aren't like, uh, you know, normal, but are normal for us because we do them all the time. But if you've never had a baby before, you'd be like, why are they doing this? (laughs) Yeah, we fucking cry up there. Yeah. So and then, you know, we try to come. We I mean, we come in and explain it all, but it's also like. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes it happens it just, real fast it happens real fast so and then obviously katie this is kind of like i didn't obviously do a lot of research for this because this is just my life but uh uh-huh. um if you think of anything to interject of course katie. yeah and um, we can talk about how their ours are different too yeah we can talk about how it's different um because there are certain similarities but not everything is obviously going to be the same mm-hmm. so basically Dave, oh, you've had a couple of babies. Well, Christine's had a couple of babies and yeah, you've been there. I've been there. For when she, yeah. So can you tell me, tell us about what was your experience with the, all the things that happened on the labor and delivery floor? <sighs> well, it's been a long time. I'm trying to, and, and, and among the things I'm concerned about for myself is my poor memory. But, <laughs> um, I do remember, uh, that there was, you know, a lot of waiting, Mm. Um, cause babies, you know, I guess many babies take a long time to, uh, to come out. Um, I remember, yeah. I remember there was a, there was a big emphasis on monitoring the fetus mm-hmm. as you might, you know, expect. Um, and that didn't always work out very well. Um, there were problems with monitoring the fetus and, um, where, where I think Christine, as I recall, Christine thought things were going one way and the monitor said the other way. And the nurses were more inclined to, to believe the monitor than the mother. And, um, let's see what else. Yeah. I, I remember, I remember, um, I remember accidentally talking too much with the nurse midwife and not enough, not paying enough attention to the, to, uh, Christine. <laughs> mm. Cause I like to talk. But yeah, specific procedurally, I'm not sure. Yeah. So, um, so first, what happens when you come into um, labor and delivery is you're often seen in what we call "quote unquote" triage. Mm. And this is, I guess, I'm going to focus on people that come into labor because you could come in for like a lot of different things. Yeah. I guess you could come in with like. Um, rupture of membranes too and you might be treated fairly similarly so if you either come in in labor basically what's going to happen is and you're like a term patient we'll stick to this is like your normal like bread and butter person in labor term patient so you know none of the like special circumstances really Mm. um so what's usually going to happen is depending on like how uncomfortable you look and that's another Mm -hmm. weird thing about the um 
the labor and delivery floor that's I feel like different than a lot of other places in the hospital where I ask you if you're uncomfortable and if you say yes we'll be like good that's a good thing <laughs> because on the labor and delivery floor it's a good thing to be uncomfortable because that means you're like gonna have a baby <laughs> yeah if you're comfortable and you haven't had an epidural you should go home not for a few time. hours yeah <laughs> um so the nurses course, will like tell you too like when you get a call for triage they'll be like she says she, she's having contractions but she looks fine <laughs> <laughs> and i mean obviously you get fooled sometimes but most of the time yeah. it's pretty hard to tough out labor mm-hmm. in a way that's not noticeable you know yeah so usually what happens um we'll check your cervix and what that means is we put two fingers in your cervix to see how dilated it is. And then we also like use our fingers to tell how thick the cervix is and like where the baby's head is in position to your pelvis. So, um, and then we report that number. Um, the first number is how dilated you are. So it's like from zero to 10. The second number is how effaced you are. So that means how thick or thin your cervix is. And this from is like inside reported. to outside, right? Or is it from side to side? From it's from inside to outside, outside. yeah. Okay. Outside to inside, yeah. Okay. Um, either way. Um, and that's usually, we report that as a percent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, like 25% of faced, 50% of faced, um, you know, 100% of faced, et cetera, et cetera. Also, once you get to um, the N numbers, usually, you know, like if you're 10, some people just say they're complete complete whatever yeah because mm-hmm. those are the last numbers there's a fair there's a fair amount of stylistic choices that you can make when you yeah, a little finesse yeah a little finesse like if someone's like their cervix isn't um like this is like really not open and they're they're not really that much effaced and their baby isn't that low we say that they're closed thick and high for example yeah um, and then the baby's head station. So it's like minus three to plus three, minus three higher in the pelvis, plus three lower. Um, and that's like the number of centimeters based on the ischial spines. Yeah. So like when so, you're doing a cervical exam, you can feel the ischial spine, which is like the part of your pelvis that there's like little pokey things that poke towards your vagina, essentially. And you can feel them on your fingers when you're checking someone. And you basically take that and then measure how far the most uh, descended part of the baby's actual skull, because babies have lots of caput, so like their skin and stuff, but then you feel their skull, and then you measure like in centimeters how high or above or below it is. And you're doing all this by feel. Yeah. You're doing all this by feel, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing that probably makes the job of OBGYNs most difficult, is pretty much everything we do is blind. Yeah. Like, Mm hmm. We use our hands to see. And yeah. um, also plus or minus we're feeling for sutures in the baby's head so that we're mm-hmm. trying to figure out which way the baby's head is facing because uh-huh. that could become a problem later. Usually that's not like something I mean, you'll feel for sutures like on a first exam to see if they're like, is this a baby's head? Yeah. Um, later in labor is where you might like definitely try to like determine a baby's position if they're like having problems or something. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Corbs, do you guys put an ultrasound on everybody for position? Uh, we put an ultrasound on everyone basically for just to say like vertex versus breach. 
that's what we yeah we, we don't do like a lot of scanning as far as like trying to oh figure yeah that's out, what i meant like i meant for presentation oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, we do. I mean, I always try to feel for sutures just as like a practice of like developing my skills, you know, like I do too. But also if they're not like four centimeters, you can't even feel sutures. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it's a moot point, you know, if they're not early enough or whatever and i always do like so they're the leopold maneuvers where basically you try to feel the baby outside of the mom's belly like those aren't as important i mean you can get a good you can estimate like how big the baby is i mean depending on how much fluid the mom has because if the mom has a lot of fluid leopolds aren't super accurate for like telling how how big the baby is (laughs) yeah but like, Which is um, like all of our patients. Like for instance, we had like a mom who had a lot of fluid. We call that polyhydramnios the other day, and we're like, "This is a ten pound baby." Everyone was saying like, "This is a huge baby," and it turned out this baby was like eight and a half pounds because, <laughs> like, like, we just normal. you can't tell because there's so much fluid. Um, it sounds like so. It sounds like um, it's a good idea to. I mean, you could rely on ultrasound and technology and all that kind of stuff, but you know, technology doesn't always work. Right. That's probably another yeah. good reason to practice these manual skills. Right. And that's kind of why I do it. I mean, it's just like important thing to have in your back pocket, but you're going to uh, scan everybody that comes through the door. Yeah. It's way better to learn when you have immediate feedback too. So like if you check someone and then immediately look with an ultrasound, then you know if you're right or it's like almost like biofeedback sort of like that idea where like yeah. if you see the immediate result, then it helps you learn it better. Mm. So depending on how dilated you are, they'll either ask you to stay for like an hour and we'll recheck you or you'll just be admitted directly to the floor. Mm-hmm. And that can kind of depend on like for us, it depends on staffing a lot, how many nurses they are. If you they ask you to wait or you get to admitted directly. Right. It's not uncommon for people to get sent home in early labor. And, you know, th- that decision can also be, like, determined by, like, has this person had multiple babies before? Because if they have, like, they're probably going to go faster. Um, we consider active labor to be six centimeters dilated and above. So, which is a change from what it was previously. It used to be four. Now we consider it six. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, if you're in active labor, obviously you're going to stay. Um, if you're, I mean... And also, like, people who have had babies before can just, like, baseline be a little dilated. Sure. So. Mm-hmm. Can I ask a question? That's obviously, if you, you know, you have someone come in who's had five babies and she's one centimeter dilated. That doesn't necessarily can mean I ask a, Can I ask a question? might not even be in. Yeah. What's up? I want to ask a question about the dilation effacement numbers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So why are two numbers necessary? I mean, isn't, is uh, in, oh, in my opinion, they question. mean two different things. They mean two different things. Because, like, the cervix will thin and it'll open. Mm-hmm. So, you're not going to. Some people will, like, thin out first, but still be, like, five centimeters dilated, for example. So, they're Obviously not, they're they not can't have two sides of the same coin, basically. They're, no, they're not. They're, they're two different things. Oh, okay. All right. For some reason, I thought they were. That they were no. both together. So um, there's like a really good video explaining this where you put a ping pong ball inside of a balloon and you blow up the balloon and then you like 
uh, try to squeeze the ping pong ball out. So basically what happens is like at first the, the like opening of the balloon gets a little bit wider, but then it like thins out as it like comes up over like the side of the ping pong ball Uh, to like the widest part, you know? So that's kind of like the cervix. So like when the baby's head gets applied or whatever presenting part gets applied to the cervix, it like opens a little bit and then it mostly thins out to like basically like allow room. And then once it gets to like the wider part of the baby's presenting part, then it will start to, then it will start to dilate more usually. So like you can't really deliver some, like you can't really deliver a baby if you're like, complete dilation like 10 centimeters but like 50 percent effaced because well i mean also that just doesn't really make sense but um it's like you need both to happen and we still call it cervical change if you haven't changed your dilation but you have changed your effacement we would still call that cervical change Mm. yeah okay so it's like an i it gives us a hint that like labor is progressing okay yeah so yeah um yeah, I mean, the cervical exam is, like, somewhat subjective as well. So, I mean, it's very subjective, actually. Mm-hmm. But that's why so it's all... Most of the time, it's better to have the same person, like, checking. Sure. Because you're they for, know... You're looking for the same if thing. If the person's changed or not, you know? Yeah. So... And then when you're, like, starting out, you always have someone check behind you because um, yeah. you have, like, no idea what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, like it took me a while to even be able to find the cervix, to be honest, mm-hmm. like because so like pregnant cervixes feel a lot different than non-pregnant cervixes. Yes. Yeah. They're like a lot softer and they kind of like bl- honestly blend in with the rest of the tissue hmm. until right. you know Just, what you're feeling for. Yeah. Which I guess we never talked about this, but like that's very different than a non-pregnant cervix. Like non-pregnant yeah. cervix feels like if you like poke the end of your nose. Yeah, like it's kind of like hard cartilage feeling. It's not cartilage, but it feels like more, more yeah. hard. That's also how I tell yeah. how cooked my hamburgers are. Yeah, it's the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the same thing. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm glad I found a point of reference. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's just a lot different, and you have to be able to. And then the like, you also have to be able to find the internal cervicals, so yeah. you're not. There are two like cervical oses. There's the external and the internal. And the internal is like, I don't know how to describe it. It feels like kind of like a band. Like the external oz just kind of like blends in with the rest of the cervix under, except it's the path, the part that you feel like something start to yeah. dive down kind of. But then um, the internal feels like, yeah, kind of a band of yeah, almost like a rubber band. I guess. And also, no one gives a shit about the external os. And if you measure things from the external os, then you're doing it wrong. And yeah. I had a note like this last night, and it made me real mad. <laughs> They're like, the external os is dilated to two centimeters, but the internal os is not open. I'm like, then she's closed. Yeah, she's closed. <laughs> the external os is like, when, yeah. I mean, the external os can be open for like people who are not pregnant. Like, it's whatever. Yeah. Anyway. It's like... Yeah. Just the way their cervixes are. Anyway, so yeah, it's stupid. So then we check your cervix and then let's say you get to stay. I mean, you've probably been scanned at this point. Also, pretty much when you come into labor and if you're in labor, your baby is going to be like monitored the whole time for the rest of your labor mm-hmm. until you give birth. I mean, that's the way it happens in the U.S. This is different other places. 
But in the U.S., continuous fetal monitoring is the like what happens. Now, there's a lot of controversy over the evidence of that, but, you know, we won't get into that. That's just what this is just about what's going to happen anyway. um, So basically, that means you have one monitor on your contraction pattern and then one monitor on the baby's heartbeat Mm -hmm. so that we trace it the whole time. And basically what we look for is that the baby's heart rate is like moving around enough variability, like has enough variability in the heart rate. And it also that whether the heart rate goes up or down in relationships to contractions. And then it has, um, we call them accelerations, which means the heart rate goes up. So we want those. We don't really want to see D cells. Um, I mean, I also, there's a lot to fetal monitoring, but um, mm-hmm. we'll talk, I guess we can talk a lot, a little bit about it later, but so just for right now, your baby will be monitored. I don't know if you have this, Corbin, but there are a lot of like systems for um, remote monitoring. So like, meaning you can put it, kind of stick it to your belly and then mm. walk around the hospital. Yeah. The Novies or whatever. Yeah. Oh, we have Novies too. Precious. Yeah. Yeah, so you don't have to, like, stay in your bed. I don't think we had those at Iowa, right? We didn't have no Novies. We had some sort of monitoring system where you could get up on... We had, like, some... But I don't... They weren't Novies, though. Yeah, they weren't Novies. Christine was allowed to walk around the hospital. Yeah, they have, like, remote something yeah. or other. It's like anyway. Bluetooth or whatever. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So then you go to the floor. And whether this is, like... So it... This changes based on, like... I guess we'll talk about inductions too, because like there are people who come in for inductions of labor and then they get treated a little bit differently at the beginning of their labor because you obviously have to like start labor as opposed mm-hmm. to like you already being in labor. Right. Um, so like if you're having, if you're being like induced, depending on like, again, how dilated you are, you'd, um, we usually start if you're like closed, for example, here we usually start with misoprostol. Um, there's another thing called Cervidil but, um, that people use, but we don't really use it because it's really expensive. But um, Yeah, we use miso too the most. Yeah. And miso is also called Cytotec. That's the yeah, brand also name of it. Yeah, um, And it's a little like, it's Tablet. a pill, I guess, that you put in the vagina. Yeah. Um. And it helps like contract, helps, it basically helps your cervix like soften up and contract. Um, or your, you can't use contract. it if, if there's like some reasons why you wouldn't be able to use it too. Yeah. Like if you were already contracting too much, you couldn't mm-hmm. use it. Um, if you well, had, like if had baby a, didn't look great. Yeah. If your baby didn't look great or if you, um, had a, uh, C-section. had a prior C-section, like if you're mm-hmm. toe lacking, you can't use it. Um, TOLAC, which means try of labor after C-section. Mm-hmm. And, um, so yeah, those are some reasons why you couldn't use it. Also, something that we use a lot are, uh, cervical ripening balloons. So this is where basically we put a balloon into your cervix up past your, the, your internal Oz, and then we blow it up and like put it on tension. So basically the balloon mimics the baby's head and pushes down on the cervix and causes it to dilate. Oh. Mm-hmm. So this is only useful if you're like, you have to be a little dilated to, for us to be able to get the balloon in. And if it's more than three, it's 
um, not going to be useful because it only dilates up to three, so three centimeters. Mm-hmm. So what do you guys use? We use the light cooks, cooks oh, or redmine balloons or whatever. We use cooks or foley bulbs. Yeah, we don't really use the foley's. I don't know why, but I think probably just because we have the cooks, so yeah, that's what we use. But foley balloons work. I mean, it's the same idea, mm-hmm. same concept. There's no reason why a foley isn't. That's a cat. The only thing that's different than a foley and a cervical ripening balloon is with the cervical ripening balloon, there's also a vaginal balloon. So it like squishes the cervix and like in between two things. Yeah. Instead of. um, It's a lot of balloons you can. Just pulling it for one way. It's a lot of balloons you can put up in there. Yeah. (sighs) And they're not like, I mean, they're not usually painful, but they're not like, but they're uncomfortable. Yeah. So people usually don't like to have them, but they work really well to like help dilate the cervix. And like the average time for one of those to be in is actually eight hours. So when Dave said there was a lot of waiting, like there's a lot of waiting in, you know, like for us, we come by every four hours and tug on the balloon to see if it'll come out. Sometimes it'll come out on its own, like before that before we come by to tug on it but like we come by every four hours to tug on it the average amount of time is eight hours it can be in for up to 12 hours so so once it comes out progress is being being yeah then you know like i'm three centimeters at least right we'll check you and see where you're at and then you may be able to start pitocin at that point which pitocin is basically I mean, it's then it's a synthetic like analog of oxytocin, mm-hmm. which is like a natural hormone in your body, which brings on contractions. It's also why like women who are breastfeeding will feel cramping in their uterus when their baby breastfeeds mm-hmm. because it's released um, released when the baby breastfeeds. It helps with like it's milk let down, right? I always, yeah. Um, Is it milk let down? Yeah. Yeah, yes. milk let down. And then it also like causes a cramping in the uterus. Which is good in yeah. that sense. Which is Women don't have these like receptors on their uterus until like 25 weeks, I think is the right number. Yeah. But um, I, I uh, asked our PA student about that last night and I taught her about that. Yeah. So like, for instance, if you have like a woman who's had like a demise earlier, um, She's, yeah. We also use it after labor to help with bleeding. So if you have a woman who had a demise and she's like bleeding, you couldn't really use like early. You couldn't really use oxy to like pitocin to like help her bleeding because she doesn't have the receptors yet. Sorry, a demise? Or like um, if baby like died her, in her fetus has died oh, okay. in utero. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. Or if she had a, a spontaneous abortion, right. miscarriage. Or a elective abortion. You couldn't really use mm-hmm. Pitocin to help her with her bleeding. Um, yeah. So we use that like to help with contractions like pretty frequently. Um, I would say um, some women will just come in and like labor naturally and never need any augmentation. But like most of the time we use augmentation in some way. Um and usually we check your cervix every two to four hours once you're admitted. So four hours if you um, are like not in the active labor and two hours if you're in active labor. And we want to make sure that you like change with every exam basically. 
and that you're still on the labor curve, so you're progressing normally. like your triages and your laborers well so the interns manage triage but we also have like Mm -hmm. a mid-level provider who like staffs our triage with us and then a midwife or like a pa yeah midwife and a nurse practitioner and stuff um and then in our I mean, the chief really runs the labor board, but re- like the also the second year. Okay. Yeah. So this is like the same as ours. Yeah. Yeah. And so the chief is kind of like making the decisions about like who needs pit and who needs like uh, misoprostol and who needs like a balloon. Um, but so and like when we start to push and all that jazz, but um. For us, yeah, so, but, like, the interns, I mean, this is pretty common that the interns run triage and then, mm-hmm. or, like, work in triage, and then we help on the floor and stuff. Like, I check people on the floor and, like, put in balloons and stuff, but I don't, like, really make decisions about their labor management. Obviously, yeah. I can make suggestions, but anyway. So, another thing we might do is, like, actually, like, artificially break your bag of water to help with contractions. Which, like, some women coming ruptured or, like, naturally break their water, but also sometimes will, like, artificially break your bag of water. And that's to, like, help contractions come more strongly and stuff. How does the act of breaking the bag of water start contractions? It's just, like, a body's natural feedback thing, I think. I don't know. Okay, do you have a more scientific answer on that? Yeah, it releases prostaglandins that help the... It's, like, part of the natural... So it's part of, like, the hormonal process of labor. Um, So, like, separating the amniotic membrane from, like, the uterine wall. Because they're not actually attached. They're just attached by proximity. I mean, up until the placenta, obviously. Um, But that like releases a bunch of prostaglandins that makes your uterus contract and dilate. So are the and then prostaglandins also, just floating around in the amniotic fluid and then they, when they come into contact, how do, I mean. I don't know. I mean, that's like really, this is like on a cellular oh, level. Okay. Um, but like, then also it, the oh, baby's head can be like floaty in the fluid. Mm-hmm. But once you break the water, you don't have that anymore. So the baby's head is actually being like applied to the cervix. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like putting more pressure on there. Cause like, if you think about it, like before you break the water, you're squeezing a water balloon with a ping pong ball in there. But then afterwards you're squeezing an empty balloon with a ping pong ball in there. Right, right, right. You know? I mean, this is kind of why too, like sometimes women who like want to go in labor when they go to their OB checks will ask their doctors to like quote unquote strip their membranes. Mm. Yeah. Which is basically when you stick a finger between the cervix or between the the um the fluid bag and the like i guess uterus if you will um and that releases prostaglandins which will hopefully send them into labor 
Um, but you obviously have to be careful with that when you do that because you could break someone's water. Yeah. Unintentionally. I mean, that's pretty rare, but yeah. And I mean, when you break someone's water artificially, you have to be careful because like, I mean, like you shouldn't do it unless the baby's head is engaged in the pelvis because otherwise you could drop an umbilical cord through the cervix, which is That would be bad. You would, it would like be an immediate like C-section and you have to ride the bed to hold the baby's head up so it doesn't cut off its own blood supply. So Mm -hmm. you have to be careful with that, but you know, it's pretty rare. Knock on wood for stuff like that to happen. Now that I'm on like OB every day, I'm like super superstitious. (laughs) I know. Me too. Very superstitious. Labor floor is a very superstitious place. It really is. Um, yeah. So those are some things that might happen. We'll check your cervix. Um, usually once you become complete, so 10 centimeters dilated, 10 centimeters faced. Um, so standard practice in the U.S. generally, I mean, is early pushing. So even if they're not like, so basically you could be completely faced, but your head, the baby's head still could be like, you know, higher up in the pelvis. And um, some places will actually wait for the baby's head to like, we call it labor down. So the idea of a time laboring down is that you are like letting your uterus's natural muscles <laughs> do the like pushing the baby's head down versus uh, you like exhausting like maternal stores to push. Because like if you're pushing, then the mom is like actively using like her, all of her muscles in her body and like her breathing and everything to push. But if you're laboring down, then you're literally just like living your life and letting your uterus just do all the work. Um, yeah. But actually there is a paper, an article that just came out that I added to my like list of things to use for this podcast that I haven't actually read the whole thing yet, but it was a about laboring down and whether or not it like shortened the second stage of labor. Yeah, I think. Was it in the green? I don't know. I saw an NPR article about... I think it might have been in the Green Journal, yeah. Let's see if it I was an NPR? It. Oh, well, it was an NPR article about the paper. Laboring down. Previous research... I haven't seen this new, so I'll have to look it up. I haven't seen this new study, so I'll have to look it up. But previous research has shown that it like laboring down doesn't like improve length or right. like improve C-section rates, but... Again, I'll have to read the new study and see what it says. And I mean, some people are just like want to push and are like super uncomfortable and all that. So, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. I don't know. I like the idea of laboring down, but whatever. That's just me. I'm all about being lazy, though, and just letting my ute do the work. Mm, yeah, I hear you. Um, yeah, I mean, some people, I feel like it's a better option. I feel like you just got to take it on a case by case basis, you know? Yeah. Well, like uh if your mom's already pretty tired like because labor can be exhausting even if you're not pushing you know it can just be tiring so if your mom's already like really tired or and you don't think she's going to be able to push for three hours which is a Mm -hmm. long time to push for yeah it's so yeah so and then you hopefully have a baby through the vag through the vagina through the vag sometimes you (laughs) Through the veg. Um, but you may end up with a C-section, um, which is a bummer, but it's okay. 
happens. Yeah. Um, and I mean, and there's like any number of reasons why you might end up with a C-section. Like if there's arrestive dilation, that's when you, at once you've reached the active stage of labor and you're just like not dilating, you might need a C-section or if there's like arrestive descent where you've like, this is, I feel like always the most heartbreaking is when you're fully dilated and you just like your baby just like won't come down. So, mm-hmm. um, there's, uh, like C-sections for non-reassuring fetal heart tracings. So like basically baby isn't really tolerating labor. And we tell that by looking at the heart, sh- heart monitor. Um, you might also get a C-section for that. But anyway, so let's just assume the baby came out vaginally. Um, so usually what happens is, um... Delayed cord clamp clamping is kind of the thing we do now. So if I delivered your baby, I pretty much immediately put it on ba- mom's chest and um, someone comes over and like dries the baby off and like suctions its face, all the gook out of its face. And um, I wait usually a minute to clamp the cord. I mean, this can change based on like how the baby looks. Like, if the baby looks mm-hmm. like it needs some resuscitation, usually the pediatricians yeah. will say, like, clamp it sooner. Um, but otherwise, we just wait because it's research has shown it's good for babies. Um, and then what happens after that is actually the placenta still needs to be delivered. So yeah. um, this is kind of one of those things that just, like, happens really fast. And if you didn't know what was happening, it would probably be really weird <laughs> in hindsight It because... What happens usually is all like the person delivering the the placenta, usually who the med student or whoever just delivered the baby, puts um, super pubic pressure, so right above your pubic bone, like straight down onto your uterus, mm-hmm. and then pulls on the the umbilical cord. We also like collect specimens too before that, like cord blood and stuff, but mm-hmm. you know that like takes like thirty seconds, so. And then they pull like like it's careful but like constant pressure tension on the placenta and it kind of just like delivers naturally. Mm-hmm. Um and then uh then basically right after the placenta delivers, you'll get like a uterine massage. And that's like very uncomfortable, it's but it's it really sounds. important. <laughs> um, because it helps the uterus cramp down and the most common cause of like maternal mortality is postpartum hemorrhage. So it just is supposed to help prevent that. Um, Also your nurse simultaneously after the placenta is like increasing your oxytocin. So through your IV to help your uterus cramp down as well. And research has shown this is considered the active management of the third stage of labor. um, So the third stage of labor is like the second from when the baby's delivered to when the placenta comes out. And um, it's like the active management of the third stage of labor is kind of like what is something that we believe helps um, with postpartum hemorrhage. Mm -hmm. So you'll get a massage. And then usually most of the time it doesn't really take that long for you just to cramp, clamp down like, at least in my experience, I mean, unless, I mean, obviously there's situations Mm-mm. where you go on to have acne and stuff, but like, yeah, or most if there's of like the, a piece of retained placenta or something like that. Right. 
Um, but and then usually we take a look in your vagina for any like tears. And that might be happening like simultaneously. Like sometimes if I'm waiting for the placenta to come out, I'll take a look yeah. in the vagina just to see to know what we're working with. Um, but obviously we can't really start a repair until after the placenta. Well, you could technically if it was taking a really long time, but yeah, you might mess it up. And anyway, so usually you wait for the placenta to come out and then you take a look. Um, and hopefully you don't have to repair anything. Sometimes you do. Um, a lot of times you do. So you can either have like a first degree, second degree, third degree, fourth degree. Third and fourth are rare. Second degree mm-hmm. and first degrees are more common. Um, and that Which those degrees are basically just like what the tissue ripped through, basically. Mm-hmm. How far? Yeah, how far. Yeah. Like fourth degree is like into the rectum. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Or the muco- rectal mucosa. Um, so, yeah, third and fourth degrees are, like, bad tears, basically. Yeah. Um, well, that deserves its whole other episode. Yeah, that's, like, that's too much to talk about, yeah. This is, like, the fun part, because everyone's so happy, and, like, so when you're delivering the placenta, like, even women without an epidural, like, rarely feel that much pain, because... They are like looking at their baby and everyone's like so happy and they're, I don't know. It's just really fun. Yeah. So then you have a baby and um, hopefully you don't have, so also like you usually stay out on the labor and delivery floor for two hours after you have your baby and every 15 minutes your nurse will like do a uterine massage, fundal check basically to make sure that the uterus is still like clamping down and you're not like passing clots and stuff so um and that's just to like also like make sure that we know if there's any like hemorrhage situation going on um or anything like that and then you may or may not get more medicine to help your uterus cramp down and stuff like that postpartum hemorrhage i feel like should be its own episode as well because there's a lot there Oh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, postpartum hemorrhages are scary. They are scary. Um, because you, people don't realize how much u- blood your uterus can spit out until it's yeah. doing it. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot of blood. It's a lot. So, yeah. And then sometimes we put a medicine in your bottom when that happens. We had a patient the other day. We're like, we're going to put this medicine in your bottom and then we did it, and she's like, oh, you meant that bottom. <laughs> and by bottom, we mean rectum. Your butthole. Your butthole. It was quite a surprise. <laughs> when I had a finger up my butt. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. Good times. That's always the intern's job. I think they don't tell. I, I think uh, one of the things I remember is, um, and I remember hearing elsewhere, is that uh, mothers aren't always, expectant mothers aren't always warned. First-time expectant mothers are not always warned that they will poop during labor, oh, and yeah, that's kind of an delivery. embarrassing surprise mm-hmm. for them. Yeah. It it's only embarrassing for them, though. Yeah, I mean, you guys see it all the time. Um, I think fathers are... That's one of those things that doesn't happen anywhere else except on labor right. delivery, and we're all used yeah. to I think it. fathers are often a little bit surprised by this, too, but, you know, we can handle it. Yeah. I mean, it just tells us that your baby's head is nice and low, so that's <laughs> Is that what thing. it tells you? <laughs> yeah. I'm glad yeah. it has some diagnostic. It's purpose. your baby's head is pushing the poop out of your yeah, bottom. Yeah, 
And you're pushing the poop out of your bottom, which means you're pushing in the right place. Yeah, yeah this is true. Um, what was I going to say? Pushing uh, is actually hard. Like, it's if you have an epidural... It's hard to do like, it correctly is what she means. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to do it correctly. Like, it's not like, oh, I'm just going to push. It's like, no, you, most of the time you need to be coached on how to do it the right oh, way. Oh, I, I kind yeah. of always thought it was... Uh, just something that you did instinctively and, and, and that you had to be held off from, mm, no. from pushing until the right moment, which I've read that you don't need to do anymore. I don't know. Um, um, so a lot of people will not, um, like they'll like cl- clench their legs together when they oh, push, which well, is would, not, not what would, you want, obviously. So well. Yeah. But, yeah. Or they'll like, Usually we, I mean, you can push in a d- different positions, but what we mostly do is we have your legs up and some people like push all of their energy into their legs too, which is like not mm-hmm. where you want your energy to go. You want it all to go in your bottom. Mm-hmm. So. Well, there you go. Yeah. It can actually be hard. We always have people like curl around their bellies as well. Cause that helps them put their energy into their bottom. Mm-hmm. Triage is the bane of every intern's existence. Cause I don't know. We call it the triage train when they just like keep rolling in like one after the other and you just have all of a sudden you have like six triages there and you're like, ah. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of judgments to have to make in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. The good thing. So at first, when I first started, I used to get really flustered by triages because I'm like, oh my gosh, I have like all these things to do and blah, blah, blah. But then like once I started thinking of it of like, I literally only need to decide if they need to stay, like get admitted or go home. Like that's the only true decision I need to make. Then I started feeling a lot better. Hmm. Yeah. But it's still very stressful. Like last night when I like kind of consistently after midnight we had like a consistent triage train and it was very annoying that's also kind of lame for the intern too because then you really can't go to the floor which is the more fun part yeah you don't have to feel like yeah you just have to see all these like triages and so and it's a bummer yeah i will say so corbin and i are both on nights right now um which i think i like nights a lot but whatever um i'm weird but also at our hospital, the intern manages the postpartum floor too. Mm-hmm. Um, do you too, Corbs? Yeah, same. Well, that seems like yeah. a lot. So it's like kind of hard sometimes if you have a lot of triages and you have like a lot of stuff on postpartum going on. Yeah, that so. seems like a lot of back and yeah. forth that you'd have to sort of switch yeah. switch yeah, how I mean, your brain is working. Our jobs suck. Yeah. Yeah. You just have to be able to handle a lot of things. And you have to learn how to say no. Like, you have to be able to tell people, like, this is not my priority right now. Mm-hmm. You mean tell... Which people don't like to hear, let me yeah, tell, tell you. patients. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> true, true, true. Like, if it can wait until the morning, it's going to wait until the morning. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But that's yeah. kind of a overview of things that might happen to you on labor and delivery. Well, we got a message uh, this week uh, on our Facebook page (gasps) Yeah, from Mary, Mary. uh, uh, who noted that this week, uh, Governor Reynolds announced, just announced, this is from, this is from Mary. Governor Reynolds just announced her proposal for over-the-counter birth control, and I would love to hear what you guys think of it. Some thoughts I had were concerns about health conditions being missed, and right now you can get it for free. Will that still be the case? Will it cause further problems for Planned Parenthood? 
It will be great for better access, though, she says. Uh, yeah, so she, she did. Uh, this is the governor of Iowa, Republican governor of Iowa. Interesting. Um, she is, uh, of course, uh, currently seeking election uh, to a full term. She replaced mm-hmm. uh, the previous governor, who uh, is now the ambassador of China, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, she just kind of spat out this proposal um, at a debate with her challenger um, this week. Challenger's Fred Hubble, if you want to know that. Um, and she says, uh, Governor Reynolds says, I think this is another opportunity for us to help with access, especially in rural Iowa, and to give more choices when it comes to family planning. Um, I think this is the direction we should go. I think by eliminating some of the barriers and making it available through a pharmacist, it will help reduce the rate of unintended pregnancies and abortions. Um, some people are seeing this as a way for her to, um, bolster her support um, because uh, she's, you know, it's, it's, in a, it's a pretty tight race. Um, so while she, while they, while Republicans want to eliminate probably Roe versus Wade, or many conservatives want to eliminate Roe versus Wade, if she can say, well, we, I have made uh, 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 birth control available over the counter, that's a sort of a, a way of uh, supporting her, her, um, her reelection. Um, but what do you guys think about this policy? This, this is not uh, the first time. The first state. This would not be the first state to have over-the-counter birth control. Um, but it seems like there's some risks here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that... So, there are a couple... I mean, obviously, I want people to have access to the birth control that they want. But birth control pills are not right for everybody mm-hmm. is one thing. Um, there are certain people that should not be taking birth control pills. Um, there's also, like... A fair amount of counseling that should go along with taking birth control pills like about like hey you need to make sure you take this regularly and at the same time and stuff like that so those are a couple concerns with that and also like a fair amount of counseling about the fact like hey this does not protect against stis like if you don't have you know like if you're not in a monogamous relationship you should consider using condoms also with your birth control pills that kind of thing so I mean, and also it kind of like takes away, I mean, sometimes people should have counseling that there are better, like more effective options out there than, mm-hmm. than just pills yeah. and pills. So I guess those are the top of my concerns. Yeah, same. So that's what I was going to say. So first of all, I think everyone thinks of like the medical contraindications, which are super important because the reason why we care about those is because you could have a stroke so yeah it's like it's not like this is like something that's we don't think about and that ob guys are like just these like stupid people who put people everyone on birth control like no we like take a look at all of your pre-existing conditions and like are making sure that you don't have like a life-threatening thing that will happen yeah, the, the consequences are and then of a of a bad decision in this case are 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 high yeah They're, Exactly. Or they potentially could be. I guess not everyone obviously will be. Um, the other thing is like we need to know about your other medications that you use. Um, because like if you are on like um, let's just say like you have lupus or you are on like a medicine that would potentially like be teratogenic to mm-hmm. a fetus, then we you need to be on something like more effective than the pill, yeah. basically. It, it seems it, um, it seems like um, in order for it to be safe or as safe as possible, 
you couldn't, I mean, it wouldn't be over the counter in the sense that people ordinarily think of, like you walk up to the display, grab it, and then go to the counter. I mean, you would Mm -hmm. almost have to... But that is the, that's that's like the proposal. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it would, Um, it would almost have to be to do it right. Like you could rely on pharmacists to, to do some of that counseling, right? Pharmacists know a lot about the drugs and the interactions and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, except, I mean, that would basically turn a pharmacist into a physician where you're like asking the patient all of their medical history and like doing an exam and everything. I mean, that's a lot to put on pharmacists, I think. Um, But the other thing I will say is that I do like, I totally, I actually like, I have thought, I mean, I think we both have thought a lot about like making birth control over the counter because it's kind of bullshit that like women have... Like, or men have, you know, I mean, basically men have condoms and that sucks, but that is over the counter and it's like pretty easy to obtain. Whereas like women, you have to like make a doctor's appointment and be seen. And then if you want a lark, sometimes you have to like come back multiple times and it's like all this bullshit. And, um, it would like, I do agree with, um, governor Reynolds that like, I think it would decrease abortions if women have better access. I don't think necessarily over the counter birth control, but I think better access to birth control definitely will decrease the number of abortions, which is like her end goal, which is fine, whatever. Um, if this is the way she wants to do it, I'm way more into that than her other ways of doing it. But But I mean, like, here's an idea. Um, don't eliminate funding for family planning programs. Yeah. Planned Parenthood um, so that they can dispense uh, these pharmaceuticals yeah. uh, in a safe way. How about that? You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I agree. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I like there was something else. Oh, yeah. That's the other thing is like what Corvin said, too, is like this will basically what we're talking about is the pill or like the NuvaRing or the patch. So basically like the middle, what I call the middle tier of effectiveness for birth control. Yeah, so these aren't even the most effective kinds of birth control. Right, exactly. So, yeah. Anyway, whatever. Utah. I think it's a good theory. I think it's... I'm, like, surprised that she um, put it up. The other thing, though, is that this would make it easier for people without insurance to get birth control. Yeah. But as you say, at a a potential cost for safety and and, um, proper counseling and... um, individualized attention in figuring out mm-hmm. what the best uh, birth control is. But, you know, trade-offs. Yep. Am I alone here? Yeah. Okay. I couldn't, I could, I mm. could, what? I couldn't hear no, you. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, Utah has a, has a, uh, has a plan apparently, which um, allows this, requires women to fill out a form if assessing their risks of taking um, birth control, goes over the history before they can just get over the counter birth control from the pharmacist. And then they have to check in with a physician um, with some regularity. Um, so, anyway, that sounds that doesn't yeah. sound like it's e- it's much easier. But I guess it would allow you to start yeah. birth control faster. Yes, it would. But I don't know. Whatever. It's like an ongoing conversation. I think the other thing I think though is if there was like a you know one kind of birth control that was safe for every person, then it would obviously be a yeah. great idea. Oh, the other thing, this is the other thing I was going to say that is very important is that plan B is available over the counter and it is not abortive. Yeah. Anyone who thinks it is, is wrong. So just FYI for anyone listening, if you want, if you need emergency contraception, you can go get plan B at the pharmacy. If you take it within 72 hours of unprotected sex, it will prevent ovulation if it hasn't already occurred. Mary. 
Thank you for your question. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for your question. Oh, yeah. There. Mary says that she's our biggest fan. Yeah. So thank you. Uh, you can send your question to uh, the Vagabonds podcast at gmail.com. There's a number of ways on the website, thevagabonds.com, that you can get uh, questions to us. We'd love to hear from you. Um, so we know what you want us to talk about. Floping files. Yes. Mine is Halloween. Oh. Cause this episode will come out yes, on it will. Halloween. Are you are you uh are you gonna dress and, up? Do do they well do they do they um, put out the, the memo at your hospitals that say what's permitted and what's not yet? Oh, I have not seen that yet. But I don't think I'm not gonna dress up at work. Also I don't work on Halloween. I mean I do kind of. I work overnight mm-hmm. Tuesday night. But anyway, um but tonight we're having a pumpkin carving party at um, one of my co-interns' house. And so I think I'm going to dress That's up. That's fun. Mm, that what are you going to dress up as? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I haven't decided yet. Something easy. What about you, Corbs? I'm not dressing up. <laughs> I'm not dressing up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel like I missed it. The All of the like fun parties were here last night. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Uh, well, Coraline has a yeah. uh, somewhat elaborate costume um, that I'm gonna help that I'm helping her make. Um, mm, what she is wants she? to be a planet, so oh, that's fun. Voice. So I'm not. I I, I I think it had something to do with a school assignment. So I guess they're, I guess ah. they're, uh, you know, keeping her, keeping her educated. That's nice. <laughs> that's what school's for. <laughs> Are you gonna be anything? Uh, no, I, I do plan to sit in the driveway with a fire pit and uh, dis- and nice. dispense candies. Oh, that's maybe fun. we'll hand out candy. Yeah, you totally should. That's I forgot that's a thing I can do now. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Andrew and I think that nobody will. We've never seen any kids in our neighborhood, so we don't think there will be any. Yeah. Oh. We'll keep your lights off and nobody will bother Maybe you, you should get full-size candy bars and then you'll be that house. Yeah. I have a full bean file, guys. Yes. Um, it's the fact that I can now drink from my tap water because the boil note. I just got a text message from Andrew that said the boil notice in Austin is over. It's Yay. been going on for a Yeah, week. this has been news nationally. No, I, I even heard about um, it. Why, did they, why was there a boil order? Because it, there was too much rain and it overwhelmed the like system or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So... That's why we had a boil notice, and I guess they got it figured out. So that's good. good job. It, it's awesome. been going on for a week. It's been really gross <laughs> because uh, they... I can imagine that if you're okay. So if your city is under, I've never experienced this. If your city is under a boil order and you're taking a shower, that would be all that I could think about. Is that yeah. this water yeah. is not safe to drink, but it's okay to bathe in. It's okay for it to be aerosolized yeah. I mean... and like breathed in. That's no problem. Yeah. Yeah. But you know it's over, so now I don't have to think about it. <laughs> yeah, that's good. It's like you don't realize how well. Like the one thing that actually you couldn't get anywhere was fountain pop. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I would it die. was really bad. Wow. Yeah, you can. I like get how pop until anywhere. she said that, I was like, oh yeah, this is yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah, you can get fountain pop anywhere. Uh, oh my god, you guys! Can I also? This is my semi-flipping file. Is calling soda pop because i refuse to call it soda and here i'll be like 
something something about a pop and people will be like what and they know what i'm talking about but they're just messing it's like my co-residents i'm like no i refuse to call it soda it's pop f you guys <laughs> i will never not see, call now it pop. some people in texas literally don't know what i'm talking about when see, i say pop and i'm like yeah. are you kidding see i'm me? on the other side you know when i came here i was like pop come on now guys but i don't know it's i wow. guess in 18 six, 17 years or whatever i've learned to do as the romans do but but uh, it still it's sounds odd to me. Soda, Katie. Yeah. It's not pop. It's pop. Pop. <laughs> You're outnumbered here, Dave. <laughs> All right. The official right, stance of the Vagabonds podcast. Oh, okay. I see how it is. <laughs> I see how this is going. Do you have a fallopian? Uh, I do not. Okay. But I have. Right. Well, it's been real. I have enjoyed Talk, speaking y'all. with you today. Oh. Oh. I have two. Us two, Dave. Yes. We'll see. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.